We are excited that on this Sunday as we enter into the month of June, we are also entering into a new sermon series. Um, we're, as a pastoral team, we are excited to take the next eight weeks to discover afresh the Beatitudes of Christ. I am so eager for this, this message series because my soul needs the Beatitudes. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Take your copy of God's Word and make your way there. The Beatitudes, as you may know, um, are situated at the beginning of the most famous sermon, the most far-reaching sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ. The effect of the Sermon on the Mount, I was thinking about it, this week, the effect of the Sermon on the Mount is, is hard to calculate because its truth has reached millions of hearts and continues to bear powerful influence to this very day. Nations and kings over the course of history, nations and kings and rulers have drawn insight from this sermon. Governments and public Policy have been constructed from its wisdom. Leaders over the course of history have drawn from the sayings in this sermon, the sayings of Christ. And most importantly, superseding all of that, most importantly, the church of Jesus Christ's bride has been shaped and molded by what Jesus teaches here in this text. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, in particular, what we're going to be taking these next, next eight weeks to look at, um, are laying the foundation for what life is like in the kingdom of God. Now, you may ask a good question. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, very simply, is the rule and reign of Christ, when Christ came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign on earth. So he preached throughout Matthew, he preached the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew records uh, in, in his chapters, he records that phrase 50 times of Jesus saying the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had come in Christ. He was ruling and reigning, and as, as people submitted their hearts under the rule and reign of Christ, as they believed in him, they were then a part of the kingdom. And the Beatitudes, in particular, shape, they, they give form and expression to what life is like within the bounds of the kingdom of God. This is kingdom living as Jesus describes, and this is radical stuff. I mean, I cannot read the Beatitudes and be like, oh, yeah, I got that. Every time I read it, it's like, wow, I, this is radical. This is not my native tongue, right? And we need to be reminded of all that God has for us as he calls this the blessed life, as we're going to hear. Um, what we'll see, what we'll experience over these next eight weeks is the upside-down kingdom of Christ. In other words, if it seems to you in reading this list and hearing it that, that this is not the way of the world around us, 
uh, let me just say, yes, you are absolutely correct. What Christ says about the way kingdom people are called to live is about as opposite as it can be in what our culture says. So what our culture says is this, and Christ turns it upside down. The culture says, go and get everything you can. Christ turns it upside down. And we'll see that as we walk through. So why does Christ teach us this way? Why does he describe this way of the kingdom for us? It's because he loves us. That's why. It's because he wants us not to be deluded into thinking that true blessedness is somewhere out there in the world that we have to go attain it. Or accumulate it. No, he said the truly blessed life is a life that is submitted under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. That's what's blessed. And Jesus is teaching us those very things. So we're going to read all 12 verses. Uh, Again, these 12 verses will uh, be what we go through over the next eight weeks. And we are eager and excited to do that. I'm reading from... Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. As I read, I remind us all that this is the perfect, inspired, and inerrant word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be Satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for Righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, we appeal to you now and ask for your wisdom and help in order to truly understand these things. Uh, I can't read those words and just feel like I've got this. I need your help. And we ask for your help together now by the Holy Spirit who is here, who gives himself to illuminate the word. Lord, illuminate 
the word before our eyes this morning that we might see and perceive the truly blessed life as you call us to it. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple of words of context are important to help us think, I think, biblically and accurately about this passage. First of all, asking the question, who is this being addressed to? It's an important question. Um, Notice what the text says, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The disciples. Now, what's happening in chapter 4, immediately preceding this? It tells us that Jesus was going throughout all the towns of Galilee, preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, is here. He's preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's also healing people. And, you know, I mean, people are coming to him and receiving health. They're, they're being healed of diseases and sicknesses. So Jesus, by this time, is popular. I mean, people are, are thronging toward him. They want to be healed. They want to hear what he has to say. And so he's been through all these towns and the crowds are following him. And, and you see in, in verse 18, Jesus has already called his disciples. And so the audience, Matthew records for us, the audience of the Sermon on the Mount was predominantly for those disciples who were following him. Those were the ones that, you know, he saw the crowds, so he went up on the mountain. Perhaps it was that they might hear better. Perhaps that's true. Um, but the audience was, were, were the disciples who were with him. He, he opened his mouth and he taught them, his disciples, because they were the ones that were directly around him. So why is that important? Um, well, because Jesus' teaching was aimed at those who already believed. Um, what that means is Jesus isn't making some kind of moralistic appeal here. He's, he's not saying, okay, here are the things that you need to do in order to be accepted before God. You gotta mourn. You gotta be poor in spirit. You gotta be all these things. He's not giving a laundry list of to-dos to people who don't believe so that they can, by their own action or merit, get their way into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what this is. This isn't a moralistic sermon. Rather, he's saying, for those who are already in the kingdom, this is what your life is going to, by the Holy Spirit, look like. This will describe your walk with me in the kingdom. These disciples, though they had believed, they were pretty still fresh off the boat, if you know what I mean. They were, they needed Jesus' instruction. If they didn't need teaching, then he wouldn't have opened his mouth to teach them, but he, they did, and therefore he opened his mouth and taught them. They needed his instruction. What does that mean for us? It means that we need his instruction this morning too. I need, my heart needs the instruction of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ, but I'm not there yet. I've not arrived. My wife would tell you that, that I have not arrived and that I need, she loves me, I can say that, right? Um, I need the instruction of Christ. They did too, and so do we all. It's important that we keep that in perspective though, that, that he's teaching predominantly to the disciples so that we don't make the mistake of thinking that we can climb or crawl our way into the kingdom of God by the accumulation of good works. There is a gap 
between God and yourself. When, when we were born, we were born into sin and there is an infinite gap between who we are in our sinfulness and who God is in His righteous holiness. And that gap cannot be bridged by any amount of good works. It can't be bridged by a lifetime of good works. It could never be bridged. And Jesus wants that to be very, very plain. That's why his scripture states over and over again, we are saved by grace. Saved by grace, not by good works. We're saved by grace so that nobody can boast, hey, you know, I got to heaven on my own merit here. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that the Lord receives the glory. So he's speaking to his disciples, to those who already believed. He's describing to them how to live under the rule and reign of God. And he's describing to them how under the influence of the Holy Spirit now, as, as people, as believers today, as we receive the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us and as he changes our hearts He enables us to live in these ways. And let me say again, dear friends, um, part of the reason that that we're so excited as a pastoral team is because we, we just, we need this. We need this. If this is how life in the kingdom is supposed to look, well, then we need this, like often, to be reminded of what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. We, we need these reminders. We need these directives. We need these instructions. We need to be taught. Why? Well, I live in a culture, so do you, where, where 24-7 we are being proclaimed. What's being proclaimed to our ears is the exact opposite. I, I referenced this a minute ago. Right? What we breathe, the air that we breathe in our culture is not what we just heard. It's not. It's go out and fulfill for yourselves. Do for yourselves whatever it is you want to do. Be all that you can be. Pursue your own happiness at any cost. It doesn't matter what it means to other people. You just go ahead and pursue your own happiness. You can love whoever you want and whatever you want. You can make yourself into whatever gender you want. You do whatever pleases you. It will all, it will make you happy. What a lie. What a lie. And this word stands in direct contrast To the lie that we breathe 24-7. And this morning as I was in the office and just putting some final work on this. um, You know how when you're in an airplane and they always, you know, go over beforehand. If we experience turbulence, the mask is going to drop down. You put it on your face so you can breathe. That's what this is. This is the refreshing air of the truth. We're walking around all week long, breathing in the air of the culture. This is what we breathe, church. This. This is the truth. This is what true blessing is. Not accumulation. Not status. Not power. Not good looks. Not wealth. That's not what true blessedness is. This is true blessedness. Breathe this air this morning, church. Take it into your heart. View it as God's lifeline to you. Because he doesn't want you thinking that that stuff 
is where blessing is. True blessedness is defined by the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. And that's who's speaking to us this morning. The Beatitudes are the definition of what life in the kingdom looks like. These promises listed here, they're, they're not for the rich and famous, not for the esteemed and the admired, but rather for the humble, for the hungry. Are you hungry for righteousness this morning? I got a text from a man this week who was declaring to me his hunger for righteousness, and I said, Amen. This is for the hungry and the humble and those who know their lack, those who realize their own inability. This is not for the self-sufficient, not for the self-admired or the self-esteemed. The promises listed here are for those who have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone they find their hope. That's who Jesus calls truly blessed. So... With that introduction, let me talk for a few minutes. Seek to mine this first verse here, verse 3, of what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to recognize, first of all, our own spiritual poverty. It's to realize our inability to save ourselves. It's to come to terms with our lack of enablement to make ourselves acceptable before God. To be, uh, to be poor in spirit is the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. To be poor in spirit is to shudder at the thought of your own self-greatness. Right, if you encounter somebody who is just filled with their own self-greatness, that, that's the opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to rejoice, um, just not rejoice in yourself, but to rejoice in the God who has been gracious to you. To be poor in spirit is to actively rejoice in your redemption, because your redemption does not lie anything and anywhere within the means of your own heart. Your redemption is because of Christ and Christ alone. So to be poor in spirit is to actively rejoice, not in your achievements or in your accomplishments, but to rejoice in the accomplishments of Christ on your behalf. To be poor in spirit is to be overwhelmed by the grace of God to be cut to the heart because of the mercy of God. To barely be able to look up even because you're so overwhelmed with gratitude at the mercy of Christ. Let me, let me illustrate. If you were trapped in a prison and the bail had been set at $5 billion dollars, You'd not get out, not in a hundred lifetimes, right? I mean, I could use a hundred billion, whatever the number is. You, you'd never get out. And you're sitting there trapped in prison. And imagine someone came along and paid 
the entirety of the debt for you to get out. How do you think you would walk around having been let out of jail that someone else paid the debt that you could never pay? What would be your disposition as you're walking out of jail and as you're walking around and you're enjoying the freedom once again? Do you think your disposition would be to be proud, like, yeah, I'm out? Yeah, I think you would be so humbled by the mercy of that person who paid what you could never pay, whom you will never be able to pay back, it would, in one sense, make you poor in spirit. You'd be so filled with thanksgiving that, you'd, that it would touch every corner of your life. There'd be no aspect of your life where you would not remember that you were destined to rot in that prison for all of your life. And that person paid the debt that you could never pay. You'd be shaking your head regularly. Not at the people around you that you don't disagree with. You'd be shaking your head regularly. Because you're astounded at the mercy and grace of God. I think that that begins to get at what Jesus is after here. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to humble ourselves before the Lord who has been so merciful to us. It's also, to be poor in spirit, is also to be humble before the word of the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who has rescued us and saved us. And so when it comes to his word, if indeed He saved us by His Son. When He gives us His Word, we're not going to trifle with it. We're not going to play around with it. We're not going to say, ah, it's not that. Some suggestions for life. Let's read it and then go on our way. No, you're going to humble yourself before the Word and believe it and want to grow in it. So to be poor in spirit before the Lord is to walk in humility before the Lord. What does Proverbs 1, seven remind us? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the first part. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To be, to be poor in spirit is to recognize the vast difference between ourselves and God himself. And to humbly and reverentially fear his name and tremble, in fact, at his word. Listen, listen to the words of Isaiah as he records the words of the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles. At my word. Jesus says to us this morning, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who take the word of God seriously. Blessed are those who are contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. Are we trembling because we fear him like a wrathful father? Or are we trembling because we are so overwhelmed with the mercy that he has granted to us we can hardly believe it? We dare not 
trifle with the word of the Lord. Do you see? It's it's central to being poor in spirit, to viewing the word of God in the way that God intended it to be read and heard. And as those disciples are gathered around Jesus, undoubtedly there are crowds there because it says that as well. But he's teaching these disciples, this is what life looks like in my kingdom. I am the king of this kingdom. You have submitted your hearts to the king. And therefore, here's what life looks like in my kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit because we know that apart from Christ, we have no hope. This very understanding that we bring nothing to our salvation, that salvation is all of grace. It's from grace and to grace. So overwhelmed an 18th century hymn writer that he he put it down and captured this in these probably to you familiar words. All the labors of my hands could not fill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. See, Augusta, uh, Augustus' top lady was filled with a sense of being poor in spirit, that he didn't bring anything of merit to God, that that his salvation was all of grace, that he simply believed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because we could work our hands bare in doing good works all of our lives. We could have the greatest zeal for really good things. We could weep for God with incessant tears, but they could never bridge that gap between us and God. And when we know that, when we can enjoy the grace of the gospel that saves us, that's what Jesus calls a blessed person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Top lady continues. This won't be on on the board above. He says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's why Jesus began the very first beatitude. All of our relationship with God depends on this first one. If we're not poor in spirit, we don't know God. Right? Do you agree with that? If, if we're not poor in spirit, we do not know God. Because if we think that we've contributed in any way to our salvation, we've missed it. Because it's all of grace. It's all of grace. It all starts right here. Right here. Being poor in spirit. You know, being poor in spirit, some people, I don't know, you know, they might think that the being poor in spirit is like, well, we got to walk around with our head hung low and not, you know, kind of be mildly depressed and like, I'm just, I'm just poor in spirit. That's not what that means at all. I believe that when Christ saves us, he wants us to be vibrant in him. 
But what it means, I believe, to be poor in spirit is to recognize and live life in such a way that demonstrates that you know that any grace that you've been given is simply from God. That you know that your sins are forgiven because God has saved you and not you. That's what being poor in spirit means. So we don't hang our heads. We walk around with joy because our salvation is not dependent upon me. My salvation is dependent upon him. And he has accomplished it all. And therefore, I can have joy. I can be blessed in my walk with the Lord as I have this poor in spirit heart. See, being poor in spirit, it, it enables us to keep growing in the Christian life. How's that true? Well, if, if we think that we've arrived, if we think, hey, I've been a believer for a long time, I'm pretty much there, well, we've lost this sense of being poor in spirit. No, everything from the Lord I need. I, I, I don't contribute, therefore I, I just need to gain from the Lord. So I'm going to learn, I'm going to continue to grow, I'm going to continue to posture myself as a disciple of Christ who needs the Lord day by day. Being poor in spirit enables our growth in godliness. Being poor in spirit, dear friends, as well, it keeps us humble and it keeps us dependent. We need both of those things. We need, we need the Lord to help us keep humble and keep dependent. I want to illustrate this. I, I, I read a number of you know, commentators this week. A number of these guys went here and, and I, I wanted to go here for us as well. Revelation chapter 3, there was a church in Laodicea this was a church. This wasn't just some gathering of you know, people. It was a church. And they lost their way. And if they could lose their way, dear church, can we lose our way? Yes, we can. We can lose our way. Listen, listen to what was said about the church in Laodicea. They had become smug and they had become self-sufficient. They were trusting in their own resources. This is what God said to them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The Laodicean church had lost their way. They needed God to enable them to see. Their eyes had been clouded by their own self-sufficiency. They were not living as those who are poor in spirit. They were living as self-sufficient. Hey, we've got it covered. I don't really need you, God. Maybe I'll go to church on Sunday, but I don't really need you. I don't, I'm not going to live my life in such a way as to operate under the impression that I need you. You know, you're an upgrade, perhaps, to my life, but I don't really need you. They lost their way. And if they lose their way, could we as well lose our way? Blessed are the poor in spirit. One other illustration from Scripture. We can be intensely religious and yet never be poor in spirit. This is illustrated so well by Jesus in Luke 18 when he calls to attention two men as they're walking up to the temple to pray. 
One was a Pharisee. Now, who's a Pharisee? Again, this is a religious leader. They're, they've studied. They've prepared. They've done all these things. They, they keep the, ta- the law meticulously. I mean, they were super religious, like, like more religious than anyone else. But what is religion when you have relationship with the Lord? And, and so he told them this story to contrast. I want to read it for you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Hear that self-sufficiency there? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember I said, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Those who exalt themselves in this life, who think that they have it all going on, even very religious people. He was so religious, but he wasn't with the Lord. He, wasn't, he didn't know the Lord. The tax collector, however, he met the Lord. He's like, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And he's the one... That went back to his house justified. Do you see? Blessed are the poor in spirit, dear friends. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me now transition to make a few points of application about what does this mean for our lives? How, how do we seek by the grace of God to walk this out? What does this look like? for us in a day-to-day way? There's a lot that could be said here, um, but just a few thoughts. Um, number one, actively celebrate the grace that you've received every day. So actively celebrate. How do we be poor in spirit? It's not to hang our heads and walk around kind of depressed. It's to actively celebrate the grace that you've received every day, making much of Christ in your heart and in your home. So let me just have the attention of dads and dads particularly who have kids in your home. But, you know, even if your kids have left, that's okay too. But all of us, but dads in particular way because they are the spiritual leaders of homes. Dads, work at this. Join me in working at this in our homes, okay? Let, let's, let's try to do what we do with an active celebration of the work of Christ in our homes. What, what might that look like in your, in your home? Just to encourage you, I just pray that, you know, may, may the Lord just bless any idea here that, that comes to your mind as well. Gathering your family and just reading the Word of God. You know what that does? It just reminds your kids that you are strengthened by the Word of God and that you love the Word of God, that you revere the Word of God. So gather your kids. You don't have to have some plan. Just open up the Word and read it. Let your kids hear you. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I want my kids, my goal is what then, when they read certain passages of Scripture, they cannot hear it without hearing their father's voice. 
because that means I've read it to them a lot. That's my goal. Make it a goal. Write down ways that Christ's forgiveness has impacted your life. You've been given freedom from fear. You've, you've been delivered from anxiety. Share that with your children. Help them to make the connection to the lordship of Christ and the grace that you have in your day-to-day life. And, and this isn't just for fathers, by the way. But, but find ways to actively celebrate the work of the Lord in your heart and life. And, and do it in our homes and in our families and in our care groups. Last week, we heard LaVon stand up here and share how the grace of Christ really transformed his life and his home. Praise the Lord. May there be more testimonies like that as we share in the grace of the Lord together. Okay, number two, application. Ask yourselves x-ray questions. I'm calling them x-ray just because like, they're intended to get to the heart issue, right? We can... We can ask ourselves, you know, kind of surfacey questions, but, but ask yourselves some x-ray questions. Let me give you two by way of example. Ask yourself this question. Am I growing in making less of myself and more of Christ? I think I'm getting a D minus on this one. Anybody with me? Am I making progress in making less of myself and making more of Christ? Now, let me remind us, these questions are not intended to condemn. Rather, when we realize, ooh, Lord, I need your help. You know what that does? That positions us to receive the help of the Lord. And so when questions come that convict our hearts, we say, Lord, yep, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And his Holy Spirit is in you so that he can help you. So, you know, when we're convicted, that's the goodness of the Lord to help us to grow. So, um, am I growing and making less of myself and more of Christ? Am I treasuring him more today than I did yesterday? More this year than I did last year? Am I treasuring him? Would people observing my life be able to see that I treasure Christ? Am I making... Less of myself and more of Christ. Question number two. um, Am I growing in my thankfulness and decreasing in my complaints? I have historically shared with you regularly and repeatedly how weak I am behind the wheel of a car. Right? You've heard me say that a number of times. I, I get impatient and I like to move. And, uh, you know, when someone doesn't move, I don't use my horn generally. I'm not that guy. Um, but I generally instruct them on where the gas pedal is. It's on the right. Use it. You know, I still struggle um, with complaints, whether it be slow drivers or whatever. I still struggle. So the question that I ask myself is, am I growing trajectory here? Nobody's perfect. Trajectory. Am I growing in thankfulness to the Lord? And are my complaints on the downgrade, right? Are you with me? They're going down. My rejoicing is going up. Isn't that a great trajectory for your life that, that you want to be just thanking the Lord more and complaining less? That's the way I want to move and that's the way the Lord wants us to move. So ask yourself, you, you probably have far better questions that you could come up with. Ask yourself those questions so that you can receive the grace of Christ because, again, his spirit wants to help you grow. 
Uh, Thirdly and finally, remind yourselves, regularly remind yourselves of the reward. So I I didn't spend much time on this, but let me just read verse 3 again. He he said there's, there's a claim in this verse, and then there's a promise attached to that claim. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the claim. Like, those will be blessed. Here's the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's the claim and the promise. And now here what I'm saying is regularly remind yourself of the promise that is attached to this blessedness of being poor in spirit. Your reward is heaven. Like we have so much to look forward to because God is gracious. And what will heaven be like? Well, it will be perfection. Where the presence of the Lord is, there is the fullness of joy. And so perhaps maybe for you today, this afternoon, as at times, at times, walking in this way, it can be hard, right? Let's, let's be honest. These are challenging things to always fulfill. I do not perfectly walk these things out. And sometimes I don't want to walk them out, right? I don't want to. But the Lord within us is stirring us and wants to produce this greater fruit. And so sometimes we need reward, the promise of a reward. When I was in high school, I had, um, well, it's my dad's pickup truck, but I drove around a 66 Chevy pickup truck, you know, with the fenders on the side that were attached. I would put my tra- the tractor in the back and drive around and cut people's lawns. Now, did I do it for free? No, I did it because there was a reward. It was 15 bucks to cut someone's lawn. And I thought I was the richest guy on the planet. Like, woohoo, you can't get a window wash for 15 bucks anymore. The point is, I was motivated by reward. Sometimes we need to be motivated by reward. Your reward, the true blessing of walking in this way, is that even though we may not see it fully now, even though we experience just the taste of heaven in being in the church and having fellowship with people, one day our faith will be made into sight, dear friends. One day it will be made into sight and we will be forever with the Lord. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more phone calls from your doctor. No more need to go to the doctor. They'll be irrelevant. We'll be with the Lord. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Even as we walk this road together. So let me ask the worship team to come and join me on the stage as we prepare to close. What did Jesus do here in the Sermon on the Mount? He is He is teaching his disciples, those who already believed, not how to get into the kingdom of heaven, but what life will look like within the kingdom of heaven. This is not some moralistic sermon where you got to do this, 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 and this, and this in order to qualify for the kingdom of heaven. No, this this is a gospel of grace. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And by faith in Jesus Christ, By believing in him and repenting of your sins, you too can have eternal life. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven under the rule 
and reign of Jesus Christ. So, being poor in spirit means rejoicing, doesn't it? Our salvation isn't dependent upon us. Being poor in spirit recognizes, Lord, I could never earn my way. I could never do it. And you have done it. So I can rest. I can rejoice. I can take hope and confidence in the grace that he's poured out for us. Dear friends, as we go through this series, I pray our prayer is that you will receive afresh the grace of life. The grace that God intends for us as he declares, not the world around us, as he declares the life that is truly blessed. Would you stand with me as we pray and prepare our hearts to respond in song? Lord, thank you so much that our salvation is not dependent upon our works. Thank you that you have enabled your people to be poor in spirit, which means that our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is squarely landed on your shoulders. Lord, that causes us to really rejoice. And we rejoice because the reward of that hope is heaven where we'll be with you for all time, for all eternity. And so, Lord, as we walk these roads, as we do experience from time to time real hardship, real difficulty, real challenge, Lord, as, as at times we, we can get proud of our own accomplishments and our own, our own doings, Lord, help us to maintain this posture of being poor in spirit, of looking up and looking out and focusing our heart on you. Because you have done what we could never do for ourselves. This we pray together and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.